looking at any number of levels. But it's it's especially intriguing. It's a church that um, has been planted. It has um, existed for a little while at this point in time. And uh, yet it is a church that is floundering miserably. Uh, it's an interesting study in, uh, out of all, I mean, every, basically every church Paul writes to is in trouble in some way. The least is probably the Thessalonian church, but even the Thessalonian church has got their significant issues. But Paul, across the board in every one of his epistles, is writing to churches at various levels of being in trouble, struggling, um, in error. And so it, you get a sense in, in reading the epistles, if you're reading them carefully and contextually, you get the sense that churches are going to be places of struggle, won't they? Places of error, places where missteps are made, where decisions are made poorly, where theological perspectives are wrong. Uh, you're going to find that to be the case. You've heard me say before, when, when we look at the church in general, what we discover is that there is a visible church and an invisible church. What I mean by that is, and you've heard me use these terms instead of invisible and visible. You've heard me use the term uh, the crowd and then the true church, the, the bigger group, the visible church. The, what you see is oftentimes the crowd. And then within that crowd, if it is a true church at all, if, it's a, if it is, then within that crowd, you will find what the scriptures call universally as a remnant, right? That is the true church. We've talked about that many times. Probably more significant than any of the other churches that Paul wrote to, the Galatian church has a really insignificant remnant. The church in Galatia is in absolute disarray. It has gone so far off the rails. It's, I would argue the Galatian church is much worse off than the Corinthian church. And we know the Corinthian church is off the rails. The Galatian church is more significantly off the rails, dramatically off the rails, grotesquely off the rails. So much so that, that when Paul writes the book of Galatians, you'll notice unlike um, all of the almost all of the other books that Paul writes, there is no statement in the beginning of the book of thankfulness. Let me read it to you just so you get an idea. Paul, an apostle, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the church, the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the, in the grace of Jesus of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And then he goes from there. That's just the opening salvo. Galatians is a brutal book. It's a painful book. There are little glimmers within the book of Galatians of hope and encouragement. One of those is in the very first verse. Very, very first verse, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is that? What did Paul just declare to them, simply summed up? The gospel. The gospel. A glimmer in the midst of the mess in, the, in this book that Paul is addressing, he starts out the entire book, by reminding the church of Galatia what? Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Christ died for our sins. Why do you think that Paul does that in Galatians? Remind them of their desperation, right? Remind them that they are in desperate need, far beyond their ability. So it, 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 it certainly is valuable and understandable when we start getting into the meat of the text to discover that they are being caught up by all sorts of legalism, going back to the law, 
and, and being trapped by things that utterly and completely will not save, but have only one purpose, and it is to condemn and show that they need a Savior. They're getting caught up once again in the very thing that served the purpose of pointing out to them they needed a Redeemer. And so he starts out the book by talking about the gospel, and then from there he immediately shifts in verse 6 of chapter 1 to talk about how quickly they're deserting the gospel, to go after another gospel that's not a gospel. And you get the sense in the Galatian church, early on, it's a relatively early book in Paul's writings, you get the sense that it's a pretty common problem. How do we know that? How do we know it's a pretty common problem? It's not here in this book, but how do you know it's a pretty common problem that, that churches will revert to things that are not the gospel? Any, any, any examples or any, any other clues in the New Testament that this is pretty common? Every other epistle? Yeah, like almost every other epistle, right? That's a good one. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, what does he say about the church in Asia? They left him. They completely left him, right? And if they left him, that means they left the gospel. gospel. They have Demas leaving him. And he says in chapter 4, everyone's left me. You get the sense that it's common? 2 Timothy chapter 3, one of, the, one of the latest books he wrote. What does he say? The Timothy. That's chapter 4. But the church is going to be after teaching or scratch, uh, uh, pastors who are going to tickle itching ears. Absolutely. They're going to gather together teachers that will do that very thing. In chapter 3, after going through nine verses about the church and the mess that the church is going to be in the last days, as they turn their back on the gospel, and he's talking corporately, he says, they, 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 for nine, chat, nine verses. And all of a sudden it shifts from third person plural into you, however, Timothy. It becomes very singular. You, however, cling to what you know. And what you become convinced of. You get the sense that it's going to be very common in the church, don't you? Galatians is not the anomaly. It's common. It always has been. And it always will be. It shouldn't be surprising to us. So it's really important that he starts out with the gospel in the first opening salvo before he gets into the blasting of chapter 1, 6 and following. And it'll be, it'll be six chapters. Literally, if you read Galatians, it's six chapters of Inferno. Does that make sense? I mean, he has got the full bore Inferno going on in chapter 1 through 6, once we reach chapter 1, verse 6. In the midst of that, we find these little statements that are so encouraging, like we saw in 1 through 5, they're so encouraging, they'll, be, they'll, they'll show up again and again and again. Like chapter, we get to chapter 5, and he says, the fruit of the Spirit is, and he lists it all out, right? And after he lists it all out, he says, against such there is no law. Interesting that he's talking about law throughout this book. There's no law against the fruit of the Spirit. And it's what the Spirit brings. It's, a, it's like this glimmer of light in the midst of the darkness that is the book of Galatians that is reflective of the state of the Galatian church. And I would argue is, is reflective of the state of the church throughout the ages. Except for the remnant. It's in the midst of all of this that we come to chapter 4. And as we said, we, we're coming to the close of what we call the Christmas season. We sang Christmas songs this morning. Christmas carols. We'll sing a few more after we're done. But in chapter 4, he says some really interesting statements about... The Christmas story. In the midst of the church in Galatia wandering astray, in the midst of the church in Galatia turning to the things that cannot save, turning to the law, turning to circumcision, turning to things that cannot save, Paul turns back to them and reminds them again of the message he preached to them when he was with them. And what he has reminded them of repeatedly during that time. After talking about what the purpose of the law is in chapter 3, and what the law looked toward, Jesus Christ, 
He starts off in chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He's basically just talking about the ancient Middle East, ancient Near East custom that is so common, that was so common in that day. If your father was rich and you were a son of your father, or in this case, more importantly, verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 4, a child of that father, make sense so far? That's the word he uses, child, infant in other words, of that father, even though you're an heir, you are no different from a slave, which means you have no right to that inheritance. Does that make sense so far? What's he referencing here? He's speaking to a Gentile church. It's primarily Gentile. But they're being influenced by something. What are they being influenced by again? Judaism. Judaism. They're being influenced dramatically by an attraction to the law. In other words, what, what these Judaizers have been saying to, to the Galatian church is this. You know, belief in Jesus Christ is good and it's important. Believe that he accomplished what he accomplished on the cross. What Paul was talking about is really, really, really important. It's absolutely essential. But unless you're circumcised, unless you follow the law, you cannot be saved. You cannot be. And by the way, can I just pause now for a second? If you don't think that's a problem today in the church, that kind of a view, you've got your head in the sand. It's just a problem today as it always has been. You just say it a little more subtly. We, we're more skillful at it. We've learned, what we've done is, what the church has done is they've learned how Paul condemns it and we've worked up, to use a Microsoft term, we've came up with, we've come up with, <laughs> Work with workarounds. That didn't solve the problem. <laughs> we just came up with new ways to talk about it that worked around the way Paul describes it. So therefore now it's palatable, but it didn't fix anything. So what do we have here in verse one? He's referencing the condition or the position of covenant Israel in the Old Testament. The position of covenant Israel was that they were, well, before we talk about that, we're talking about covenant, not Egypt. We're talking about covenant Israel. In other words, at Mount Sinai, through Moses, they received a covenant. It's been called the Mosaic Covenant, a covenant of promise, a covenant that talked about land, didn't it? And then we've got the Abrahamic covenant that the Mosaic covenant's built upon. Genesis chapter 15. Land, seed, and blessing. Which ultimately focused on and pointed to Christ Jesus, right? No question about it. But the, the people of Israel, even though they were people of the covenant that was cut by God to their people, to his people, they were, for all intents and purposes, a child, an infant. In other words, the, the inheritance didn't effectively what? Belong to them. Because they were, they were a child. They had not reached, as it describes in verse, in, um, in verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So in other words, functionally speaking, they're no more than a slave. No more than a slave. And the reason why Paul is mentioning this to these Gentile, to this Gentile church is because they are turning back to the condition of the Jews in the Old Testament covenantal period who are under guardians. And what was the guardian? The law. They are under the guardian, the law. The manager. 
the law. And as a result of being under the law, they had no hope of receiving the inheritance. Was it promised? Mm -hmm. Yes. But as long as they remained under the law, they had no hope of the inheritance. They were nothing more than slaves. And you know that's the case if you really think about it. If you're, if you're depending upon the law to save you, you are a slave to the law. And you can never measure up, right? Because it's a, it's a taskmaster that will always do what? Only condemn you. Always leave you hopeless in yourself. Always. It says in verse two, they're under the guardian. They were under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And the father of the law is God. Who cut the law? God did. Mount Sinai. He wrote the law. He gave it to Moses, who then gave it to the people. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, the same term used in verse 1, when we were, and notice words mean something, is that present tense or past tense? Past tense. When we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, of the world. Now I want to pause in that for a second, because there are... There is a, a huge swath of Christianity that looks at the statement, the elementary principles of this world, of the world, and they try to make it out to be something other than contextually what it is. He's still referencing the law. And we were enslaved to the law, but it's not just the law anymore. It is, we were enslaved to the law, but if you're enslaved to the law, you're also enslaved to what? If you're enslaved to the law, you're also, in, but you can't measure up to the law, then you're also enslaved to the failures of the law, right? The failures, not of the law, but your failures to the law. Make sense? <coughs> Those belong to you, don't they? Right? And if the if your failures to keep the law belong to you and you're enslaved by your failures, what it means by that, what I mean by that is if you're enslaved to your failures, that means you can't get rid of your failures, correct? They're yours. And we know according to the Old Testament and New Testament that no one measured up to the law, right? <coughs> no one kept it perfectly. It also means when it talks to the elementary principles of the world, it also is talking about, it's talking about the law, it's talking about our failures of the law, but then ultimately it talk, it's talking about if I am a slave to the law and a slave to the consequence of not keeping the law, that means I am a slave to the curse of the law. The ultimate curse of the law. Which means that I am someone who ultimately, I was, it is past tense, I was someone who was enslaved to the basic elements or the um, elementary principles of the world. And so ultimately, what's the elementary principle of the world? The elementary principle of the world is that if there's life, there will also be death. Because that's the result ultimately in the curse, right? What, what, what does Genesis chapter 3 say? The, when you eat of the tree, of the fruit of the tree, what will happen? You will die. And the New Testament reinforces that over and over again, doesn't it? Doesn't it? When we understand it in context of the law, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about the elementary principle of the world is this whole thing we're talking about here. Notice. <clears throat> Verse 4, and this gets into our Christmas story, but verse 4 starts out with what? The word but. In other words, if you just look at 1 through 3, how much hope is there? If you're enslaved to the law, if you were enslaved to the consequences of not fulfilling the law because you couldn't, but it was your, as it describes, your guardian and manager, 
until the day comes when you are, and the idea here, the date set by father would, in, in, the, in the historical context, physically speaking, in the ancient Near East, was that when the father determined you were mature, enough to receive the inheritance, then he would set the date and you'd get the inheritance. Does that make sense? If that is true, what is the chance, spiritually speaking, that we could reach the point of maturity? My God. Understanding who our guardian is and our manager is, the law. What are the chances we could ever reach the date? You can't. You have no hope of reaching the date. Why? Because you are a slave. And the interesting point about the slavery to the law versus, versus slavery as a child is that a child does do what? Grows up. As the managers and the guardians work with the slave child who is an heir, an inheritor, what happens to that child? He grows up and he becomes a mature and maturing person. And as a result, he receives his inheritance. But when it comes to the law, the purpose of the law was never to cause you to grow up. That was not the purpose. It was impossible. Those who were looking to the law had no hope of ever moving beyond slavery to the law. So this idea that we see in verse 2, until the date set by his father, the father, as in, in this storyline, the heavenly father, cannot have a date that's functional, can he? Because God's understanding of maturity is what? What's God's standard of maturity? Perfection. So any date God, God sets for us, who reaches it? No one. Which means what? If no one can possibly reach the date set by the Father, then that means what with regard to you and I for inheritance? You're never going to get it. Does that make sense? You will live your entire life nothing more than a slave. That's it. And ultimately, according to the Old Testament timeline and New Testament, ultimately then the net result is when you die and you will die because of the Curse. Curse. You will find yourself to be a recipient, not just of all those intermediary curses, but the ultimate curse. Separation from God and for eternity. But God. And then we come to the word but God. Is that something? Because one through three is, remember what I said about Galatians? Pretty hopeless, pretty dark. Isn't it? Then we come to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And this is where we get that phrase. You heard you say it, but God. Here's a classic where it comes from. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's stop there. That word but is such an important word. It says, one through three, there is no what? There's no hope. It's dark. It's doom. It's gloom. It's condemnation. It's curse. It's slavery. Unending slavery. And then out of the blue, now the Galatian church, the Galatians, if they heard Paul preach, all had to know this. The word but shows up. Because there is hope. There must be more. This cannot be the end of the story. This cannot. And what's interesting, what Paul writes next, but when the fullness of time had come, 
What is he referencing the fullness of time? Yes, it, it, is, it is Christ's arrival and the events leading up to it. Correct, correct. But what he's referencing close context is what? The date set by the Father. He's talking about the date when the date that was set by the Father came. But when the fullness of time had come, a lot of people have played games with this term fullness of God had come, fullness of time had come. They try to look at it historically, you know, well, this is going on in the time frame and that was going on in the time frame. Most theologians I've ever read have said that. Well, this is going on, that was going on, something else is going on. It was just the perfect time to have this happen. That's not what it means. This is a time set before the foundation of the world. Right? Is God dependent upon what man does? No. This is, this is a time set from before the foundation of the world, and the time that was set, this fullness of time, was the time, now you need to hear this, it was a time when God said, it's time to be, it's time when you should be mature. And so therefore, it's the time for you to receive your inheritance. This is really important. It's time for you to receive your inheritance. Why is this so important? Because that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. Partially. You don't believe me? Matthew chapter 5. We call it the Beatitudes, right? And what everybody does with the Beatitudes, not everybody, but most people do with the Beatitudes, is they say this. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Friends, it's really important for you to be poor in spirit. You ever heard anybody say that? Yeah, it's all the time. Almost anybody ever preaches in, on the Beatitudes, I'm choosing that as an example. And he goes on with all those what we call Beatitudes, which I don't think is the right term for it at all. Jesus declares, blessed are the ones who are like this. 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 And one of the reoccurring words is, for they shall inherit. You know what Jesus is doing there? It's really interesting because there are no commands in that entire section. God is, Jesus is not commanding these people to be that way. Jesus coming to the planet was the fullness of time. It was a time set by the Father. For what? For the child to be identified as mature so that they receive their inheritance. What Jesus is doing in, the, in the, what we call the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 is he's saying this. He's saying... The time is now. The time for what? The time to receive your inheritance. This is the time set by the Father to receive your inheritance. Children. So now I'm going to declare, I'm going to say, blessed are you if you are blank. Well, if you're blank, you're what? Whatever that is, all those different terms he uses. You're what? You are, in light of Galatians 4, you're mature. Right? By the Father's standard, you're mature. And so what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 is he's saying, for all you are here gathered here to hear this message, the message is, blessed are you if you are this. Come forward and receive your inheritance. I've joked around about this, but this is the only... This is the only invitation in the entire scriptures. We do a lot of churches do a lot of invitations. This is the only invitation in the scriptures. Come forward and receive your inheritance. And how many people come forward? None. Why? Because no one was mature. Why? Because no one 
could be mature. Why? Because they are under guardians and teachers that are what? That are taskmasters that are demanding that they live a way they cannot live. Because God's standard is what? Perfection. Again, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. This is one of the most amazing Christmas verses and gospel verses. And it's stunning to see. The fullness of time had come. Other places in scriptures use the term the proper time or the appropriate time had come. Uh, other passages use, use other terms, but the idea is it is the perfect time is the idea. And it's the time to dole out inheritances in context. It's a time to dole out inheritances. But what does Jesus find? Unsurprising to Jesus, what does he find? Again, everyone is still a child, and therefore they are still a slave. No one deserves what? The inheritance. Because if they're given the inheritance, what's going to happen? Just think about it for a second. If they're a child who is not mature, what's going to happen to the inheritance? It'll be blown. It'll be squandered. It'll be wasted. It will be abused. It will be ridiculed. It'll be minimized. It'll be trivialized. Oh, wait a second. Does that not sound like a lot of what's going on in the world, in the church today? Think about it. So what is the story talking about in verse 4? There was no one who was anything more than a child, a slave, an infant. No one. And so the fullness of time came. Yet everyone, to no surprise by God, no one was able to receive an inheritance. Which is why after Matthew 5 is over, Jesus moves into, you need to repent, and by the way, I am the lamb that takes away, the perfect lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That's where Jesus goes from Matthew 5 onward. That's what he does. Continually. So what's going on here in verse 4? Everyone is a child, an infant, therefore they're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But the fullness of time has come. And so there's a dilemma, a conundrum. What do we have? We have a vast, uncomprehensible, incomprehensible, infinite inheritance available to no one. And so what does God the Father do? He sends one who will inherit. He sends one who is able to inherit. Doesn't he? That's exactly what he's talking about. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. His son. And notice the words are important. He sent forth his son, born of woman, which says something, doesn't it? I just want to show, point it out to you real quick. This is a great verse for this. This is a side, but don't forget this. He sent forth his son born of woman. The order is important. When he says sent forth his son born of woman, it means he existed before he was born of woman. He sent forth. And the idea is, if he's sending forth, where's God? Heaven. He's sending forth his son. The idea is from heaven. Heaven. With this miraculous birth, born of woman. We're not going to get into it further, but you get the idea. The idea of born of woman means what? He became 
Man became flesh, became man, became human. Born of woman, born under the law. In other words, he's born, and since he's born as human, that means he is under the law. He has a, what, a manager, a guardian, correct? He has a manager, a guardian, because he's an infant, human. But unlike all mankind since the fall, what does he do? He lives and follows the law absolutely perfectly. I'm sorry? Yes, absolutely. And so he completely does what? Fulfills the law. What no other, other human could ever do, he did. That's why he says, that's why Jesus says, I didn't come to what? Abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? And he came and he perfectly fulfilled the law in every way. Because there's inheritance to be collected. There's inheritance available. There's an inheritance to be given. But the children, the infants, are unable to receive the inheritance. They're absolutely unable to receive it. And so Jesus, in verse 4, sent by God from heaven, born of woman, born under the law, goes on in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, words are really important. You'll notice he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And the idea is, again, what we just talked about, the only way to redeem those who are under the law is if you are under the law and fulfill the law, right? Now, if we think it all the way through, you understand the process. I just want to remind you, he was under the law. He fulfilled the law completely. And in fulfilling the law completely, it's dramatic how completely he... We think about fulfilled the law completely by meaning what? He kept it perfectly. And it's true. That's what it means. But it means more than that. Because just because he kept it completely means nothing for you and I by itself. You realize that? It's irrelevant. Yay for Jesus. He kept the law perfectly. That means nothing for you and I by itself. When it says he fulfilled the law, it means that, but it means so much more. Not only did he keep the law perfectly, but he did something far more. He looked at you and I, who still are in a horrific state, right? We were still in a horrific state because why? What's that, Jim? We didn't. We didn't. He did. We didn't. And so we didn't. He did. That means nothing to you and me because we're still, since we didn't, we're still what? We're still slaves. Does that make sense? We're still slaves. Infants, as it were, according to this text. Just because Jesus kept it perfectly means nothing for you and me unless the next thing takes place. He perfectly fulfilled the law, not just by keeping it, but he perfectly fulfilled the law by in perfectly keeping it, he then took your sin and mine. Because perfectly keeping is one thing, but to fulfill it means dealing with not just obedience, but it's dealing with the dilemma. The dilemma 
of the curse. The law, because there's a boatload of people, all people who have failed. And so the curse is there. You see, if Christ merely kept the law perfectly and went back to heaven, we'd all be in hell. Why? Because there's no transaction. There's no transaction. That's meaning that's a historical story, is all it is. He kept the law perfectly. That's all it is. But the transaction is that you and I didn't. And so, in other words, the day set by the Father would have done what? It would have come and it would have gone. Wouldn't it have? It would have come and it would have went. And Jesus would have received his inheritance, wouldn't he have? Wouldn't he? He would have received his inheritance. And we'd all be condemned. But the scriptures tell us, however, something quite dramatically different. He fulfilled the law, which meant he fulfilled not just the, the nuts and bolts of the law, but he also fulfilled the curse of the law. Well, how do you do that? He did what only he could do, being God. He, we've said it many times before, he stood in your place. He took on your sin. He wore an alien sin. It wasn't his. It was yours and mine. And he absorbed an alien wrath. It was due to it was for you and for me, not for him. But because he had our sin, he received the full vent of God's wrath. And yet the law still isn't fulfilled, is it? It isn't. The final fulfillment of the law that the scriptures tell us, and this is the complete transaction, that he gave us his righteousness. And the law is completely fulfilled in every way. In every way. And that's why this text says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, and the purpose Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, to bring them out from what? From slavery, from out from under the law, which inevitably meant the curse and not the blessing. To bring them out from under the managers and the guardians of the law. And then he goes on in the text to redeem those who were under the law so that ultimately the purpose so that we might receive adoption as to catch the interesting change in verbiage. What were we in verse one? Slave and child which is the word for infant. Slave, condemned, doomed. Elsewhere, the scriptures say that we were enemies of God, right? And what does he do in this great transaction so that we might receive adoption as infants? Sons. Sons. And as a result, you're right. Heirs. And you see that in verse 7, don't you? Verse 7, so then you are no longer a slave, child, infant. But you are a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. It's stunning, isn't it? That is the transaction. That is the gospel. Wow. Talk about a great, concise description of the gospel, declaration of the gospel. Yes. Yes. Double imputation is absolutely correct. Absolutely. Yep. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. Completely. That's exactly what he's talking about here. Without that entirety of the fulfillment of the law, we have nothing. But an interesting historical story. But that great transaction took place as described here. So we might be receive adoption as sons, and he saw verse 7, as a result, we are heirs. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we know about this text. It's been talked about forever, I think, Abba, Father. Interesting statement, and I think that we've misunderstood it somewhat, just nuance-wise. A lot of people today think, well, that means, you know, Abba means like the, the conversation of a, of a young child to a uh, to their father, a daddy, uh, oftentimes is understood that way. But really it's more about intimacy than it is the word daddy or Abba. The word is referencing an intimate relationship, a tight relationship, a, 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 like so deep and so intimate, like nothing else we could possibly comprehend which is why Jesus in, in John 17 says, I pray that you, they will know intimately in the most intimate way possible the Father and that they will know in the most intimate way possible the Son who you sent. Abba, Father. Intimacy, closeness, nearness, Emmanuel, like we talked about last week, God with us. He sent his Spirit into our hearts for the purpose of that deep and abiding intimacy based upon the reality that he did what we could never do and he removed us from the guardian, from the manager, and placed us in the family as adopted sons. And the scriptures elsewhere tell us that the inheritance we receive it's Jesus' inheritance. It rightfully belongs to him. And he does what? He shares. He's firstborn. Scriptures tell us that. He's the oldest brother, right? Firstborn. All inheritance goes to him. And in his mercy and grace, he does what? He shares with you and me. What's Paul's point in sharing this with us? His point shows up later in verse 8 and following. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those that by, by nature were not, are not gods. You're caught up in all the wrong things by nature, and you can't help it. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Remember we said Galatians, a pretty dark book. Pretty painful book. He's writing to a church in disarray. God caused this, church, this letter to be inspired because in his sovereignty he knows that throughout history the church is going to be in disarray. And there are going to be huge swaths of people in the church who are going to want to what? Go back to the law and other things for salvation. Thinking that somehow they can earn it. And so Paul writes, in light of verses 1 through 7, what Christ has accomplished, the incarnation and the goal of the incarnation, the stunning transaction that we have, which was the whole purpose for the incarnation, he says in verse 9, how can you turn back again to these work or weak and worthless elementary principles? Why would you ever want to be that again? 
Well, the answer is pretty clear. Why would anyone want to go back to this if I am a son? And if the fullness of time has been applied to me, why would I want to? And the obvious answer is, you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to. Why? Because God has sent his spirit into those who are truly adopted sons. Does that make sense so far? And so Paul's only response possibly can be, verse 11, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you, how? In vain. What does it mean? What? He wasted his time. What's that, Jim? Same thing. Other ideas. Add to that. They're not sons. I'm afraid there's a possibility you may not be sons. What, G, what, what Paul is saying, I'm afraid there's a possibility. In context, I'm afraid there's a possibility, Galatian church, that you missed the fullness of time. You missed the time appointed by the Father. It came and went. It's a shocking statement by Paul. It's a horrifying statement by Paul. That he's afraid that maybe all this was wasted because you didn't truly believe. That you played the game. You did the Demas thing late in his life, right? That was later in life. You did the Ananias and Sapphira thing early in life. Make sense? Early, late. But ultimately, it was all in vain. Perhaps for you, Paul saying to the Galatian church, understanding there's most likely a faithful remnant in there, right? He's talking about the church generic, church corporate. That perhaps what took place in my ministry in your life was in vain. And we know that, according to the scriptures, the vast majority of gospel ministry is what? In vain or fruitful? It's in vain. I mean, obviously God does what he's going to do because gospel is used to harden and soften hearts, right? But I'm talking about in vain referring to eh, not becoming sons. We know there's a whole lot looking at the four soils, right? Look good for a short period of time. Then what happens? Gone. Right? Isn't that what happens? Three out of four of the soils? That's what happens. And we know that the scriptures tell us over and over and over again, there's just a faithful remnant that are saved, right? And sometimes in, this, in the New Testament, that's even connected back, back to the, the flood, isn't it? And we know how many came out of the flood. Only eight. We know how many went into the, into the, into the, um, the promised land. Three. You get the sense that the remnant is kind of small. And so Paul fears for the Galatian church that perhaps he labored in vain. Why? Because why in the world would anyone who's truly a believer, who's truly redeemed, who's truly received the down payment of his inheritance, of Jesus' inheritance, graciously given to you. Who that has truly received the Holy Spirit ministering in their lives? Who, if the truth is that if he began the good work in you, will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ? Who would, in that category, actually turn back to the law? Or to use Jesus' direct terms, Phrase, sentence. The one who puts his hand to the plow and what? Looks back is what? Not fit for the kingdom of God. Do you sense a reoccurring theme in the scriptures? It really is there, isn't it? Please, please. The word of the person who has been walking in the right path who gets off and 
place back to them if they're persevering to repent and it's not yes. that they repent, but in the sense that he's not making an absolute statement that anyone who sure. never can come back. Yeah, sure. That's a good question. Now I think I think Tom what I would argue not necessarily it's not really stated here. It really isn't. But it I think it's argued elsewhere in the New Testament that certainly um, for example, 1 John 1. Let's go over to 1 John 1 real quick. The, the question, if you didn't hear it, is, is, is Paul rejecting the idea that, that, um, that if someone uh, uh, degrades, as it were, truly a believer would degrade and starts, and starts messing around with the law again, uh, that they really, they really weren't saved or maybe they're, they can't somehow repent and return, whatever. No. Certainly uh, in First in John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth, of, uh, the truth is not in us. Notice that verse I just read, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, what? We're lying. We're deceived. The truth isn't even in us, right? We do sin. That's the point of that verse. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a what? A liar. And his word is not in us. Okay? It's an issue of light and dark, right? Light and darkness. Light and dark. Light and dark. Am I in the light or am I in darkness, right? Verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that we may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's writing so that we don't what? Sin. But then he says right after that, but if we sin, right? But the words he's using is very purposeful. We, right? We, not them or whoever. We, who? Those who, in context... The we are those who are aware. In Christ or in the light. Correct? Those who are in the light. Do we sin if we're in the light? Yes, we do. But he has provided a way, and the argument here and elsewhere is if we are truly in the light, we will what? We will, this side of glory, still what? Sin. But if we sin, the Spirit does what in our lives? Convicts us of our sin, and if the Spirit is really in our lives, we therefore do what? We confess our sins, and that's the evidence that we are in the light, that we do confess our sins. So is are there some people in Galatia that may be tempted? Well, yeah. Maybe failing? Sinning? Yes. Except not maybe. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense in Revelation two and three when when Paul talk or when John talks about the, one of the churches and says, "My goodness, just about everybody in the church has bowed their knee to Baal, right?" But then he says, "But there are several who have not yet bailed their uh, bent their their knee to Baal, right?" What does he tell them to do? Stir up what remains, which means what? It means that even them, even those who haven't put their knee down to bail yet are, are people who are what? Who are still sinning and struggling and floundering and failing at times, right? And so the need is to what? Stir up. Make sense? So yes, is it possible that in the Galatian church there are some who are, I'm going to use this term very specifically, is it possible? Yes, and even likely that there are some who are dabbling in the law issue stuff, right? Does that make sense? They're dabbling in it. They're messing around with it. They're kind of, here is the truth over here. And they're, they're becoming interested because there's this, there's this droning siren song about the law, isn't there? Right? There's a siren song. And, and yet I'm in the light. But boy, that siren song sounds really good, doesn't it? And so I go over and stick my foot in it. Right? But when I do, what happens? If I'm truly saved, what happens? Spirit starts working in my heart, doesn't he? He bears witness in my heart, doesn't he? That I really am a child of God. 
And if he's bearing witness in my heart that I really am the son of God, a child of God, what does that mean? What happens? I'm broken. I, I, the spirit is breaking my heart. Why? Because I'm being reminded of my older brother in a transaction. Right? I'm being reminded of that transaction by the spirit. And I'm being crushed by the spirit, blazing the light of the truth into my heart. And I find myself, I'm going to say it happens immediately, Tom, right? We know it doesn't. Because we love our sin, don't we? When the Spirit convicts us of our sin, we do what? We repent and we embrace again, by God's mercy and grace, our, our, our older brother, don't we? We embrace our salvation, don't we? But then there's a whole other group who aren't coming over and being tempted by the siren song and getting their feet in there, right? They're not, they're not sticking their feet in. That's, by the way, Galatians 6.1, same book. It says what? Galatians 6.1, two chapters later. Interesting. My mind's just running, Tom, if you don't mind. 6.1, brothers. He's writing to the church, which means there are brothers there, right? Brothers. He's writing to believers. <clears throat> If anyone is caught in a, a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In context, what has he got? Oh, brothers, if you see someone else in the church caught up in a temptation, what is that? In context, the temptation to go back to the law, what should you do? Restore them. You know what that means? He's telling them, if I, may, I used this term before, he's saying, listen, brothers, put on the waiters. Right? Go in there. Go into the mess over here and pull them out. Rescue them. Yes. But you're wearing waiters. Why? Because it says, be careful that you don't get what? Caught in the same temptation. You don't get that junk all over you. The implication of the text, and by the way, the anyone there is referring to other brothers. That's what he's referring to. Yes. Yeah. And you know what you're going to find? There are going to be some people who are, they got a foot in the law, and you say, you put your waiters on, you go in to rescue them, and you know what they're going to do? No. Some of them are going to say, yes, you're right, but they're going to say, thank you, and they're going to, they're going to welcome you, bring them across, right? Back to Jesus. And that's a sign of what? That's a sign that they are truly what? Regenerate. Regenerate. They're saved. But there's going to be a whole other group of people that are going to be what? You're going to be over there with your waiters on, and you're trying to pull them out, and they're going to be what? They're trying to get your waiters full. Right? They're trying to get it above waiter level. So it all goes pouring into your waiters, and you're totally corrupted by it. And that's why Paul says, be careful you don't get caught in the same temptation. And I would argue the vast majority of the church in Galatia, the vast majority of the church in most places, are going to be people who, as you you use the term, Tom, professing believers, right? But when you go over to rescue them, they're going to be what? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Because they're chapter 5 works of the flesh people. And that's what's going to be exposed, Right? They're, they're not for the spirit people. They're works of flesh people. The, the, the fruit of the spirit people end up over here somewhat too, right? We do, don't we? We absolutely do. But we're people who come back over here by God's mercy and grace, if the spirit is who God says he is. Is the Holy Spirit powerful? Is he more powerful than our hearts? Yes, he is. The only question is, has the gospel come to us in vain or not? Right? That's the only question. Has it come to us in vain or not? And that's the story of the incarnation. Isn't it? The story of the incarnation is not that there was a baby born of a virgin in, in a manger. The story of the incarnation is the transaction that took place. And the only question that remains about the whole story of the incarnation is, was it in vain for me? For you? Or not? Because if it wasn't in vain, it's a glorious thing, isn't it? 
He purposely fulfilled the law, including taking on my sin and taking on the wrath and setting me free and adopting me as sons and setting me up in a position I could never be. No longer a slave, but a son, an inheritor. What a merciful God you serve. Amen? That he would change my heart, take me from death to life, adopt me as son, give me an inheritance that's uncorruptible, undefiled, it fades not away, preserved in heaven for me. And we have the first deposit, don't we? But there's something yet to come, something great to come. Summed up in being with him, with all the brothers. Amen? What a glorious thing we celebrate this season. Isn't it? I'm sorry we've gone so long. But they don't come in afterwards anyway, so it's okay. What a glorious thing we we talk about and sing about and consider this season. And that we should be thinking about all the time. Can I just close by saying this? What a great gospel condensation, isn't it? What a great condensing of the gospel of verses 1 through 7. And then if you're talking to someone who claims to be a believer, 1 through 11. Isn't it? What a great text. Let us, as we go from here, <clears throat> in the waning days of the traditional Christmas season, be reminded what this is all about and the glorious transaction that's taking place. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we are prone to wander. There is no question about that. We ask you to take our hearts and seal them for the courts above. You have accomplished what only you could accomplish. You have purposely fulfilled the law. The time set by the Father has come and it has gone. And it's only those who are in Christ who receive the inheritance. Of course, the inheritance is completely summed up in being in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you will glorify yourself in us, in our church. Lord, I pray you will bring this to remembrance for us. Cause our hearts to rejoice and cry out, Abba, Father, in intimacy with the one who has redeemed us. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we? <clears throat> Before we sing this song, <clears throat>